satsang. I like to begin by quoting Baba, Baba Muktananda, who began every program by saying in Hindi, Sabko Varisanmane Kesat Prem Sayadik Swagat. With great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart. And that was the essence of his message, his main message, to welcome another person with love to see God in each other, to be kind to each other, and to be kind to yourself. So in that spirit, uh, I want to welcome you tonight. <clears throat> and um, as uh, Girish was telling his story, I thought of another story similar to that, <clears throat> of my own. Um, I didn't put it in my memoir because it didn't have a good ending. <laughs> But I thought if I tell you it, that that's a good ending. So in uh, 74, I was traveling with Baba. We came here. Greg will remember in Q. <clears throat> we, uh, we had pro Baba was in Q, and we were living with him. And he did outside programs at night. And, but in the afternoon, or the early, late morning, he would have satsang right on the lawn in the place where he was. Uh, and um, those were great events. We'd all sit around and new people would come. Let me get, take this. <clears throat> and I was on the tour, but uh, we had a guy named Rick Grimes who was the sound man on the tour. And one day Rick said to me, Look, I've got to go into town. You do the sound today. I said, I don't know how to do the sound. He said, nothing to it. <laughs> yada, 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 that's the end of the story. <laughs> so, so, um, <clears throat> so I tried to memorize a few things he told me, and he went off, and there I am. Uh, and the program's going, and I'm doing what he said. And suddenly, at the end of the program, Baba decides that it was the time to chant the Bhagavad Gita with uh, a couple of people. And so he's doing it live. He's chanting the Bhagavad Gita. And I realized that it's not on, and I don't know what to do about it, the, re the recording. And I'm frying 
completely out of my mind. And Bob is chanting. I mean, it's a very rare thing. He's chanting the Bible <laughs> Gita, and I'm not taping it. And then the moment came, and he looks at me, and he says, play it back. You know? <laughs> and if you know, if you want to know why I'm deeply scarred. <clears throat> anyway, it didn't have a good ending. And he looked at me, and the word Judd, which, which is Baba's word Judd, which means stupid like a stone, like inert, tamasic. You know, that was the worst thing he could say to people, he just say, Judd. And he didn't say it. He, he, I could see him restraining himself, thinking, Shankar's too tender, he'd die. So he, he goes, but it came, came at me astrally, Judd. And he went, and I was crushed. I still haven't gotten over it, but maybe this will help in my, my therapy. <laughs> There's nothing like that kind of thing. <clears throat> so, what do you think? You didn't drain you well enough. <laughs> no. Rick Grimes. Rick Grimes. Yes. <clears throat> anyway. When he got back, I said, Rick. <laughs> of course. Oh, tough. <laughs> a lot of sympathy. <laughs> he said, oh, that's uh, a burn. <clears throat> anyway, these programs are dedicated to that great relationship, the guru-disciple relationship, and to the great beings who hold this knowledge and hold this shakti. They are beings that have connected with an, an extraordinary level of reality, a higher power that's right here in this world, but unseen and unknown, except those who've been awakened and contacted that power. And these great beings hold that power, and they transmit that power, and they give that power, and they teach us. So I find uh, I'm endlessly fascinated by these great beings and I celebrate them in these programs. The greatest of them all are our two gurus, Bhagwan Nityananda and Baba Muktananda. Uh, but we celebrate a number of others, and tonight, one of the first ones that I ever, first Indian sage that I ever came across, and that is the great Ramana Maharshi. In India, they say Raman Maharshi. But Ramana or Raman, uh, a great sage of the 20th century. Most of you know his story. He had a spontaneous awakening at the age of 16, uh, in which he realized the self in 20 minutes, in the most extraordinary way. Uh, he, he began a process of inquiry. He thought he was going to die. And uh, he started to ask, well, if I die, who dies? And in 20 minutes, he'd attained the self permanently. Um, <clears throat> you should be so lucky. And we all should be that lucky. But uh, he was just an ordinary schoolboy, not particularly spiritual at that point. 
but he totally transformed. And from that point on, he was falling into meditation, and he was completely different inside. Uh, and then his brother said to him, he saw him, instead of doing his homework, he would be going off into samadhi. His brother said to him, you ought to go to the Himalayas. What are you doing going to school? And Ramana said, good idea. And he left. Left a note saying, I'm about my father's business, and he left. And he went to the holy mountain of Arunachala in South India, and he stayed there the rest of his life. And he went through this kind of inner process, and after a couple of years of deep immersion in, in meditation and samadhi, he came out of it and started to share what his experience was. We have other pictures? Let's see. There he is with Lakshmi the cow. His, his, it's more than a pet. It was almost like uh, his beloved, like his mother. And he loved this cow, Lakshmi. And uh, next. There he's sitting in the hall giving darshan. A man of uh, such peace and such sweetness and such wisdom. Um, that's it? Okay. <clears throat> so I have a, a, a teaching story and then a couple of uh, uh, charming incidents. Um, <clears throat> the first one is a dialogue from 1938. Romano was born in 1880, as I remember, or thereabouts. He died in 1950. Um, and um, there's a wonderful collection of dialogues with him that a devotee got, and uh, so we have those. And this is uh, th the 3rd of February, 1938. Miss Uma Devi, a Polish lady, convert to Hinduism, asked Bhag Sri Bhagavan. Well, before I go into that, let's talk about Uma Devi. She's an interesting person. I, uh, I'm very interested in these, uh, the early pioneers of Westerners going to India. Um, and Swami Parmananda did a talk on, on the Western women of that time. So here's another one for you. <clears throat> I'll tell you about her. Her name was, her real name was Winda Danowska, and Wanda Danowska. And she's born uh, in St. Petersburg, Russia, into Polish nobility. And she studied Eastern spirituality and became a theosophist with Annie Besant. Theosophy was the, the quintessential westernized Hindu path of the late 19th century, early 20th century. Eventually, she traveled to India in 1935. Uh, she would have been about 45. Uh, and then spent a lot of time at Ramana's ashram. Uh, she translated Ramana's teachings into Polish and because of that, got a lot of interest in Poland uh, in yoga. Uh, and she was a close associate of Mahatma Gandhi, who gave her the name Uma Devi. <clears throat> and then it says, together with Morris Friedman, she founded the Indian Polish Library in Madras, which translated Hindu religious texts and poetry. Now, Morris Friedman is a name that I know very well. <clears throat> By the time I was in India, he was living in an apartment in Mumbai, 
and he was a devotee of Nusargadatta Maharaj, and he would translate for Nusargadatta Maharaj, and he is the one who did the great book, I Am That. He translated it uh, and put it in English and, and uh, wrote the preface or something. And also a lot of the, uh, the ashramites of my time, when they went into Bombay, they would stay at his place, the men in my dorm. I never met him, but the others would go there, they would go to Morris's. <clears throat> so there's a connection. Anyway, uh, Uma Devi studied Kashmir Shaivism with Swami Lakshmanju. In 1956, she met the Dalai Lama, and she became a Buddhist, <laughs> having nothing better to do. <laughs> uh, and she helped Tibetan refugees along with Morris Friedman. Died in 20th March 1971, which was just about when I met Baba. My first days in the ashram at that time. <clears throat> but this is a question of Uma Devi to Baba and one of, not to Baba, to Bhagwan, Bhagwan Ramana. Oh, you have a picture? Oh, yeah, okay, let's see. Yeah, there she is. Very nice. <clears throat> so you can find out more about her. So, <clears throat> she asks uh, Bhagwan Ramana, Ramana Maharshi, she says, once before I told Sri Bhagavan how I had a vision of Shiva at about the time of my conversion to Hinduism. Similar experience occurred to me later in the south of India. These visions are momentary, but they are blissful. I want to know how they might be made permanent and continuous. Without Shiva, there is no life in what I see around me. I'm so happy to think of him. Please tell me how his vision may be everlasting to me. <clears throat> so Ramana says, Ramana throws some cold water on her. Ramana says, you speak of a vision of Shiva. Vision is always of an object. This implies, this implies the existence of a subject. If there's an object, it has to be a subject. The vision always is always held within the seer. So it is the seer that is the important thing. Whatever experience, it's always held by someone who sees it, the subject. <clears throat> appearance implies disappearance also. Whatever appears must also disappear. A vision can never be eternal. But Shiva is eternal. So that which is seen comes and goes. But the one who sees is eternal. The subject is eternal. He says, the vision of Shiva to the eyes signifies the existence of the eyes to see. The booty, the intellect, lying behind the sight, the seer behind the booty, the, the I, the I am, and the sight, and finally consciousness underlying the seer. So if there's an object, it has to be the senses to see it, and then there's the mind that contemplates it, and then behind all of that, there's consciousness. So consciousness is the fundamental thing. Thus the vision is not as real as the one imagines it to be because it's not intimate 
and inherent. It is not firsthand. It is the result of several successive phases of consciousness. So the fundamental thing is the subject. It's always the I. Everything else is kind of exterior to that. It's very subtle what it's saying, and yet if you contemplate it, you see that it's absolutely true, that the subject is always there. That's why it's interesting that we have a cult of objectivity in the West. Science is always trying to be objective, but they leave out the fact that there can't be objectivity without a subject to observe that. There can't be an object without a subject that sees it, that witnesses it. He goes on, of these consciousness alone does not vary. It is eternal, it is Shiva, it is the self. So if you were to look into your own experience of life, you would see that that which you see and hear varies, comes and goes. Your emotions come and go. Your thoughts come and go. But the one who observes all that, the one who upon the screen of which you experience your whole life is always there. Or another way to say that is look for that which is always there in, in your experience. And there is a something that's always there, and that is the subject, that is the self. So this is what Ramana always pointed to. He goes on, gives the full teaching here. <clears throat> the vision implies the seer. The seer exists as the self. There is no moment when the self as consciousness does not exist. The vision of Shiva can come and go, but the self can't. Nor can the seer remain apart from consciousness. This consciousness is the eternal being and the only being. Thus, seeing really means being. To be is to realize, hence, I am that I am. I am is Shiva. Nothing else can be without him. Without the I am, there can't be any. Without you there to witness the world, there's no world for you. Everything has its being in Shiva and because of Shiva. This is the teaching of, of Jnana Yoga. And um, it's something that I used to really try to contemplate and think about. And it means that no matter what our experience is, it can be good or bad, we can be frustrated, we cannot get what we want, we, cannot, we can get what we don't want, all kinds of suffering implicit or possible in life, but behind that is always Shiva, is always consciousness. And so in principle, the self or happiness is always available to us if we can access it. It's a very simple teaching, but very profound. <clears throat> Therefore, he says, inquire who am I? Sink deep within and abide as the self. That is Shiva as being. Do not expect to have visions of him repeated. Don't be mongering for experiences, visionary experiences. They're good. They're wonderful. They're significant, but they're not what you're, the ultimate thing. 
He says, what is the difference between objects you see and Shiva? He is both the object and the subject. You cannot be without Shiva. Shiva is always realized here and now. If you think you've not realized them, that is wrong. This is the obstacle for realizing Shiva. Give up that thought also, and realization is there. When you move your identification <clears throat> from what's temporary, from the mind and the senses, to the substratum, to the self, realization is revealed. It's not attained, it just shines forth. Thing. Uma Devi says, not satisfied with that, that's one of the most clear and profound statements of the teaching that I've heard from Ramana. So she must have been very high quality yogini to get such a teaching. Um, but, <clears throat> but she's impatient. She says, yes, but how shall I effect it as quickly as possible? Ramana, this is the obstacle for realization. Can there be an individual without Shiva? Even now he is you. There is no question of time. But don't be, don't be so pushy. <clears throat> if there is a moment of non-realization, the question of realization can arise. <clears throat> but as it is, you cannot be without him. He's already realized, ever realized, and never not realized. Now he comes, he gives the medicine she needs. Surrender to him and abide by his will. Stop being impatient, stop pushing for something you think is going to happen, and surrender to reality. Collapse into what's so, what's real. Abide by his will, whether he appears or vanishes, whether he manifests himself as a vision or not, await his pleasure. If you ask him to do as you please, it is not surrender, but command to him. You're running Shiva. Hey, Shiva, show me yourself. You cannot have him obey you and yet think that you've surrendered. We, we actually do. We want Shiva to obey us, don't we? We want uh, that higher power to dance to our tune. He knows what is best, and he knows how to do it. Leave everything entirely to him. His is the burden. You no longer have any cares. All your cares are his, such as surrender. This is bhakti. Extraordinary. That's so saying, so the path of wisdom is to say, who am I, who am I? and to inquire like that. But the other path, which Ramana is saying to her, is the path of devotion. It's just surrender. Give up your burden. Just live with what is and be content in that. And know that Shiva is there, the consciousness is there. <clears throat> or, he says, giving another point, or inquire to whom these questions arise. Dive deep in the heart and remain as the self. One of these two ways is open to the aspirant. You can either surrender completely and live happily or inquire and dig, dive deep. Go deeper than your thoughts. 
deeper than your neuroses, deeper than your fears, deeper than your desires, deeper than your anger and craving, and go that deep and then find the self. And that's a very difficult path because you have to have a lot of discrimination, a lot of renunciation. Or you can just surrender. That's easy. Oh. <clears throat> Bhagavan also added, there is no being who is not conscious and therefore who is not Shiva. So he's drawing an equal sign between consciousness and Shiva. Shiva is consciousness itself. And so we are conscious beings, therefore we participate in Shiva. We have Shiva nature. <clears throat> Not only is she Shiva, but also all else of which he is aware or not aware is Shiva. Yet he thinks in sheer ignorance that he sees the universe in diverse forms. But if he sees his self, he is not aware of his separateness from the universe. In fact, his individuality and other entities vanish, though they exist in all their forms. Shiva is seen as the universe. And this is the vision of Shaivism, to see everything as the one consciousness. It's all Shiva. But the seer does not see the background itself. Think of a man who sees only the cloth and not the cotton of which it is made, or the man who sees the pictures moving on the screen in a cinema show and not the screen itself as the background, or again, the man who sees letters which he reads, but not the paper on which they're written, saying there's a, in all these cases, there's a background. What would be a modern one who sees the computer but not the screen? Sees all the, your game on it, but not the screen on which it is. Saying, see, see what's fundamental, in, which abides. The screen is always there. The movies come and go, but the screen is always there. <clears throat> the objects are thus consciousness and forms, but the ordinary person sees the objects in the universe, but not Shiva in these forms. Shiva is the being assuming these forms and the consciousness seeing them. That is to say, Shiva is the background underlying both the subject and the object. And he is Shiva in repose and also Shiva in action. Or he is both Shiva and Shakti, both the Lord and the universe. It's quite an extraordinary teaching, isn't it? How are you doing with this? Is this good? <clears throat> Can we test that? Statistically? <clears throat> Whatever is said to be, he says, is only consciousness, whether in repose or in action. Think about that, really. Take that on. It's, everything is consciousness. Consciousness is everything. Take that on. Think about that. Contemplate it. You are a conscious being, and it means contemplating consciousness, your own true nature as consciousness. The whole world is contemplating externals and superficial things. But the great saints, the great beings invite us to contemplate the essence, the substratum, the, the essence of it, which is consciousness. Consciousness can only be examined not by <coughs> instruments, not by 
experiment, but only by consciousness itself. Consciousness itself, that is you, has to examine itself. Consciousness has the capacity to turn within and examine itself. It can't use instruments to examine it, because it's prior to any instrument. So it has to, you have to examine it yourself from inside yourself, see what you are. He says, whatever is said to be, it is only consciousness. Who is there that is not conscious? Who is not realized? How can these questions arise, doubting realization or desiring it? <clears throat> these questions arise because you've limited the self to the body. And then the ideas of within and without the subject and the object arise. The objective visions have no intrinsic value. Now he's saying, these visions of Shiva have no value. <clears throat> Even if they're everlasting, they cannot satisfy the person. Even if you saw Shiva dancing in front of you, you still wouldn't be satisfied. After the first six months, you'd say, can I change the movie? You can be watching Avatar, and you'd even get tired of that. All those blue people. <laughs> I got tired of it in one minute. <clears throat> he said, Uma has Shiva always with her. <clears throat> Both together form Ardhanishwar. The, 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 the form of Shiva that is both Sakti and Shiva in one. <clears throat> it's a very interesting thing. There are depictions of it. Yeah? <clears throat> Yet, she wanted to know Shiva in his true nature. So she did tapas. This is Sakti. She wanted to know, so she did sadhana. That, that's how she got it. See, Shakti Parvati, when she wanted something, she didn't go to Myers. She did sadhana. She went to the Ganges, stood on one leg, and did japa for a thousand years. And then she got what she wanted. <clears throat> she made tapas. In her meditation, she saw a bright light. She thought, this cannot be Shiva, for that is within the compass of my vision. I am greater than this light. She saw the light, but I contain the light. So I see Shiva vision, but I'm the container. I'm greater than the vision. <clears throat> so she resumed her tapas. So that's not it. <clears throat> Thoughts disappeared. Stillness prevailed. Then she realized that being is Shiva in his true nature. So she collapsed into beingness. One cannot see God and yet retain individuality. The seer and the seen unite into one being. There is no cognizer, nor cognition, nor the cognized. All merge into the supreme Shiva only. So that's Baba's teaching to uh, uh, Uma Devi. Pretty good, huh? Must have been a smart Polish lady, I'd say. <clears throat> There's another very smart lady, and her name was Nagama, Suri Nagama. And I'm a big fan of Suri Nagama. I'm very grateful to her. Just as I'm grateful to um, 
Tulsi Yama for Chittakashkita. She wrote down Bhagwan Nityananda's comments, and so we have that. And I'm also grateful to Mahendranath Gupta, who wrote all these exquisite stories of being with Sri Ramakrishna. And I'm also grateful to Uma, well, actually, Kalyani might have been Kalyani, I don't know, for, for putting together the Book of Baba, yeah, <clears throat> and Amma. And I'm also grateful to, oh, I forgot who else. Oh, to Morris Friedman for putting together I Am That. Because uh, through, the, through their, their good offices, we know more about the great beings, and we can hang out with them. So this is true of uh, Suri Nagama. Do we have a picture of Yes, she is. <clears throat> I won't tell you a story again, but I'll tell it very quickly. I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you occultly. <laughs> anyway, she's a great soul, and she wrote letters to her brother about what went on in, Ramana, in Ramana's ashram, and it's one of the great spiritual books, so these are some letters. Uh, I have two of them, but I think I'll just do one the other one was quite long and then we'll meditate okay and I'll save this one for another time oh it's really good <laughs> <clears throat> okay so Suri Nagama wrote to her brother during the last two or three months Bhagavan that's Ramana Ramana's personal attendants have been massaging his legs with some medicated oil to relieve the rheumatic pain and at the end of his life, he had terrible rheumatism, like, uh, like Bhagavan Nityananda. And, you know, from too many years of lying on stones and uh, ignoring his body, probably. Some of the devotees, zealous in attention to Bhagavan's body, also began massaging by turn every half hour. And this resulted in upsetting the usual ashram routine. They were getting in line to massage his legs. Would Bhagavan tolerate all this? He was always considerate, <clears throat> even to his personal attendants, and would never say emphatically no to anything. So he said in a casual way. He was very indirect. And um, he, it, he was so tender that he didn't like to deny people. Although he was pretty strong with with uh, the Polish lady, wasn't he? He said, your vision is nothing. <clears throat> but he was so kind, he always sort of found a, a, an oblique way of saying it. So listen to this. <clears throat> he said in a casual way, all of you please wait for a while. I will also massage these legs a little. Should I not too have, I should, should I not have some of the punya? The merit? Shouldn't, you get merit by massaging my legs. Shouldn't I get some merit too? So I'll massage my legs for a while. That's what he says. So saying, he removed their hands and began massaging his own legs. <laughs> Not only was, was I, the Suri Nagama, very much amused at this, but what little desire 
might have still been lurking in me to touch Sri Bhagavan's lotus feet and thus perform uh, salutation was completely obliterated. She was getting the desire. She wanted to massage his feet, but then she saw Bhagavan words have a peculiar charm of their own. Look, he too wants a little of the punya. What a delicate hint to those who have the intelligence to take it, she writes. It was about that time that a retired judge of ripe old age said, Swamiji, I should also be given my share of service to the feet of the guru. There's <laughs> this old uh, judge. To this, Bhagavan replied, Oh, really? <clears throat> service to the self is service to the guru. You are now very old. You to do service to me, enough of that. At least from now onward, serve yourself. It is more than enough if you remain quiet. <laughs> and Sri Nagama says, when one comes to think about it, what greater upades, what greater teaching, spiritual instruction, is there than this? Bhagavan says it is enough if one can remain quiet. It is natural for him to do it, but are we capable of it? However much we try, we do not attain that state. What else can we do than depend upon Sri Bhagavan's grace? So Ramana says, stay in the clear space of good feeling. Stay in that space. And that's the essence. <clears throat> what do you think? Should we meditate? So let's meditate on that that space, that silence. It doesn't mean to have a million thoughts and not to express them. It doesn't mean to have all kinds of things you want to say and you just shut your mouth by force. It means to find the place of stillness behind all of the change, the place of consciousness. And if you find that place, it doesn't matter if thoughts are there. Find that clear space of good feeling, the essence, the I am, the self. And this is Bhagwan Ramana's teaching, and this was Baba's teaching. Baba always said, meditate on the self, honor the self, worship the self. God dwells within you as you. That your self is nothing different from God. Ramana says, we're always realized because the self is always there. So it's an movement inward, a movement inward to find that place within us that's always there. It's a great joy to understand that you don't have to do all kinds of tricks. You don't have to travel anywhere. You don't have to do all kinds of exercises. You have to simply turn in and be with your own true nature and hold on to it. Ramana would say, hold on to the I thought. The I, I. By I, I, he meant, in this moment, experience I. And in the next moment, keep, keep in touch with that I. And in the next moment, keep in touch with that I. It means self-remember, to hold that self. 
And so let's meditate for 10 minutes. And first of all, if you're a conscious being, you can meditate on the self. If you're not a conscious being, if you're a robot or a, an AI, then you're free. You don't have to do anything. You can play video games inside. But if you're a conscious being, meditate on your own consciousness, shining with brilliance, full of joy, full of love, full of neurosis, full of tearing thoughts, full of self-hatred, full of misery, full of feelings of injustice and, and victimization, full of richness of every kind. Go to the heart of it and know the self. And we'll meditate on that self for 10 minutes. It is a, it's a veritable ocean, but at the core of that ocean is peace and joy. So let's meditate for 10 minutes. So once again, with great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart. Satguna, Narayan, Shri Jai.